Hello, and welcome to the Lakeshore Records podcast, On Cue With. Today's host, Brian McNellis, had the great pleasure of speaking with Grammy-nominated composer extraordinaire Nico Mueller. In their wide-ranging conversation, they discussed Nico's stunning score for Pachinko, the concept of involuntary music, and Nico's dream to design new sounds for cars and public transit, composition for concert music versus TV and film, the practicality of solving the hardest problems first, establishing a vocabulary of trust with your team, creating Wagnerian themes versus a fluid score in constant flux, the invaluable music conservatory lessons about the golden triangle of how to hear music, see it, and be able to play it, working with the great Philip Glass, and so much more. Nico Muley's exquisite score for Pachinko is out now worldwide via Lakeshore Records. Good morning, good afternoon, how are you? I'm I'm fine. I'm just in the studio. So I've got a busy day. I've been writing all day and I have another two or three hours of writing yet yet to come. And and what are where is where are you geographically? Where is your studio? I am on 37th Street in New York. And uh and yeah, so it's in scenic uh scenic Times Times Square, Herald Square area. Oh, that's great, man. That's really awesome. Well, today I want to talk to you about your extraordinary score for Pachinko. Um, But before we do that, I think we might benefit the audience with kind of like a a brief rundown um, of your kind of musical life, if we can get that into some kind of nutshell, because you, although you've done, what, half a dozen, maybe 10 film scores and now this TV show, the majority of your work is not work for film and television. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, so my, my, my background is as a, as a concert music composer and um, most of my, most of my life is writing concert music, which is to say, you know, chamber music, orchestra music, um, a couple of operas, choral music is also a big part of what I, big part of what I write. Um, so film and TV is, is always a sort of special treat when it, when it comes around. And, and is, when you say it's a special treat when it comes around, is it something that you actively pursue or don't actively pursue, or is it just the right fit? It's the, it's about it being the right fit, but I mean, the, the, the honest, the honest truth about it is that, you know, even though yes, composing is composing, film and TV and, and concert music exist on this completely different time scale in terms of when, when things are offered to you, when things, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right now dealing with concert pieces that I'll be writing in 2025, you know, contractually right now. So it's, you know, 2022. Um, whereas, whereas with film and TV, it's like you find out about something, I don't know, like six months before it's going to happen really. Right. So it's, it's a much, tr- it's a tricky thing to kind of slot into your life. So it's when I, when I say it's a, it's a treat, it's more like when the, when the, when the stars align in that really specific way where you can actually do both. Wow. I had no idea that it was like so complicated from a scheduling point of view. Oh yes, that. I mean, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, in, in this in this world of sin in which we live, scheduling scheduling and budget really are the two only the only two reasons we're held back by anything. Wow. So so with that in mind, can you kind of like walk us through kind of like your musical coming of age, your education, and how you got 
to be Nico? <laughs> um, sure. I, well, I, I, let's see. I can do this quickly. I, I was, um, I was raised in a house kind of filled with artists. My mom's a painter. My dad's a documentarian. Um, and so I had music around as a kid. They were pretty eclectic. They're now in their late seventies. So they, they had, you know, that, that wonderful combination of kind of folk music and classical music and, and everything. Um, I played piano, but not in any kind of committed way. I was like an okay student. Um, and I sang in a boys choir in church outside of, in Providence, Rhode Island. And suddenly when I was about, 11 or 12, everything really clicked together. And I, I realized I really, really liked not just singing, but, but playing, but then also that I, that I liked composing. Um, so then I just kind of kept it up all through high school and then eventually, you know, uh, talked my way into Juilliard where I remained for five years. Um, during that time, I was an intern for the composer Philip Glass uh, and then eventually ended up doing kind of more elaborate work um, for him both kind of uh, like conducting a few film scores and whatever. And then, and then it was now basically, I, I had these kind of dual paths of concert music and, and, you know, I think Philip is one of the few other people, not few other people, one, is, one, is one of the few people who's figured out how to do film in the context of being a concert music composer pretty effortlessly. That's pretty, that's pretty dope. When in your, you know, when you were younger and in high school and like everything kind of clicked and you were singing, and all of that kind of stuff were there ever any thoughts of like you know pop music or did you always see yourself as being on the classical side of things yeah no I always I always feel very home very at home at classical I mean I know so many people who make rock music pop music whatever and I've collaborated with millions of them but I feel like I I didn't ever feel the need to do it myself (laughs) I feel like you know it's it's great to it's great to do a bunch of different things but you don't need to do it all well, I mean, but you are doing it all, aren't you? Like planetarium, right? Right, right. But that's a very niche, a niche thing. And, and you know, Bryce, Bryce and Sufjan have, have you know, gifts that I don't have and vice versa. So that, that's why that, that kind of collaboration was, was you know, an incredible kind of, I always sort of what I was saying before, like the stars aligned in such a way that we all had free time to make this bizarre project that we, we never would have been able to do, um, you know, three weeks earlier or a, or a year later or whatever. Well, that's, that's fantastic, man. It's great when the stars align, right? Totally. It's the best feeling. So would you say that, you know, it looks, you know, from, from doing all this choral music that you're really well known for, as well as like the small ensemble and, and, um, uh, you know, the, the, the choral and the small ensemble and these smaller, uh, instrumentations, would you say that your primary, instrument is your voice do you write by what you hear in your head and no I, mean, I it and write it well i haven't i haven't if you're asking about my like my singing voice i haven't sung in since i'm 12 years old but but in, in do you mean what re- rephrase the question the, the question is what would you consider to be your primary instrument for writing for music oh, writing? it's just inside like it's i mean i think about it i think about it um yeah, it's an it's an internal instrument. I, mean, I think, I think, um, you know, I it, when I when I sketch out a piece, I can hear it in my head, and then I write it out in a kind of sl- you know, you sort of zoom in and focus in on different little things. But but primarily, the, I, I I would say the answer is there there is no instrument. It's all kind of one thing. And when you say you hear it in your head, so you you hear it because I think this is the kind of thing that is fascinating to like non-musicians who are fans right like 
music is so ephemeral. It's like, uh, you know, I, there was this great quote that I heard from like Genesis Peorage and, you know, Genesis had this whole rap that like, you know, basically any engagement in music was like touching the divine, you know, even like a death metal band is like touching the divine, right? Because you're making something out of nothing. It's coming from somewhere and you don't know where, that place is but you know that it's it's coming to you like you're receiving it and then you're manifesting it out into the world as like a physical thing that other people can experience right so for you like when you say it's an internal thing the way that it becomes external is like you literally put pen to paper and write write it out like long form orchestration sheet music Literally. Yeah. That's literally what I do. I mean, with, with film, with film, it's a little bit different because it, it doesn't make sense to start that way. Cause you're working so quickly that, that the, the thing that you're being hired to do is a demo, right? Like if you're writing concert music, the people who commissioned you can read music. So you send them the music and then the thing happens later. Whereas with, with, with a film, it's like you ha- you send them an MP3, right? So in that particular case, I hear it in my head. I sketch it out sometimes by hand, sometimes on a piece of paper, sometimes on the computer. And then I make it, I make a demo directly. So it's all, it's all, I mean, each project has its own, has its own different parameters about how, how it needs to, how it needs to be downloaded from the, from the brain cloud. That's a pretty amazing gift, man. You know, like that's a pretty amazing gift to be able to hear it, write it down. And then from there, have it kind of structured out into like a computer or hand sheet music to musicians and kind of like then start working with the arrangement to kind of build it out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool. It's, it's, I mean, but you know, it's interesting. I, I, I always push back on this a little bit. It's not just a gift. It actually takes a long ass time and a lot of study to know how to do it. And I, I always bristle slightly because the, the idea that's like, oh, it's, you know, it's just, it's just natural. Like, you, you know, you just know how to, but actually, no, I mean, that's what you do when you go to conservatory for five years is that you every day are involved in the process of building that triangle between seeing what it is on a page and hearing it, hearing it and then being able to see it, seeing it, being able to play it, playing it, being able to hear it. Like that, that is, that is the fundamental muscle of, of music school. And that's the thing that you, that's the thing that you learn how to do. So yes, people are, 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 are gifted at it or whatever, but it does take an enormous amount of work. Is that your 10,000 hours? Yeah, basically. I, but it's, it is also just, I, it's yeah it, I, I i would say i would say that's definitely what that is yeah <laughs> i mean i'm always fascinated by this we we talk to a lot of different people you know a lot of different composers that come at it from different disciplines and different experiences you know there's uh, a number of people that are scoring films you know that's kind of where our world is is like film scores right and so you know the world of film scores is interesting in that people come from it from these different disciplines. They either come from, you know, conservatories or some, some people come uh, to it from like, you know, classical trained musician, whether it be piano or cello or violin, or, you know, in the case of, you know, some people it's even a horn, a trumpet player Mm -hmm, or something. Right. You know, and then other people come to it, you know, as formerly pop or rock musicians who, you know, somebody said, oh, I'm a fan of, you know, what you do, and I'd love to get your take on the music for my film. And, you know, these are people that never went to a conservatory, can't write music long form, and somehow the the medium allows for all these different approaches 
to satisfy what the film needs or the show needs, right? And so I'm always always interested in how different people come at it. And the reason I'm kind of drilling down into this with you is because your work is so unique in this space. You know, in in the you know, in my opinion, and especially on Pachinko, and we'll 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 pivot to that in a second. But you know, your stuff is really. It doesn't sound like you've been studying film scores. I'll put it that way. That seems I would I would accept that. Yeah, <laughs> um, totally. I mean, I think you know, as you said, it's there. There's a there's a huge a huge number of film scores of, of kinds of film scores that are being made. Right. And I think it's not, it's no longer about, um, it's no longer about, you know, this is the specific kind of pedigree that you have to have in order to, in order to, you know, play in this play in this sandbox or whatever. Um, so I think that's great. And I, I'm, I, you know, very, very much respect all of my colleagues who are doing completely, completely different things, not just doing different things, but coming at it from a completely different skill set or, you know, personal history or relationship to the, to the medium itself. And I think this is a good thing. Um, so yeah, <laughs> to, I don't know if that was a question, but my answer is, I think this is great. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess my question is coming at it from your particular vantage point, have you found any challenges in translating what you've done for, you know, chamber music in translating that to how it works for film and and now TV. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, yes, there there are, there, there are a lot of challenges and it's, well, it's hard to know how many of those are related to, you know, my experience versus just, it's a challenging thing to do. Um, I mean, I think coming at it, coming at it understanding that what you're making is a creature of the of the recording studio and not of the concert stage changes the way that you have to layer things and changes changes one's changes one's sense of you know how orchestration to work and it's a very different thing right if you're if you're making something where it's you know you're recording things with the wind separate from the strings and whatever and it's like that you you one tends to record film scores like film scores even if they're not coming from that tradition um so there's that to, to take into into account. Um, there's also understanding that you need to make music that if someone gets sticky fingers in the edit and wants to kill a stem, that it still sounds like music, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is a tricky a tricky thing. Um, and I don't know. I mean, there there you know, but but again, it's less about, it's less about the genre of like this is film score and this isn't, and and more about your collaborators. Um, so that, that to me is, that to me is the bigger, the bigger question and less like how is film different than an opera or whatever, because those things can happen there too. So, so let's talk about Pachinko and how you got involved in Pachinko. And I'd be really kind of curious to also hear, you know, what previous works that you've done that have influenced the way that you approached pachinko but we can start with the first part how did you how did you get involved in pachinko from from the beginning how did this one come to you uh sue hugh the showrunner called me up and she was like do you want to do this and i said yes it was really simple (laughs) basically um so that was cool um i'd read the book as as had everybody else um and they sent me uh a few of the a few of the um scripts and it seemed amazing 
And it was, um, you know, it's exactly the kind of thing that, that I'm good at, as in, which is to say, it didn't contain any of the things that I'm bad at, <laughs> which is to say, like, you know, gigantic elaborate action sequences. Um, it felt like it was a family story with emotional intensity, and I, I felt really drawn to it, and I thought, okay, I can, I, I can do it. So that, that was the process, basically. In addition to that, though, one of the things that, that sold me immediately was that Sue was really con- was really kind of fluent in my music, number one, but also not just the film music that I'd written. So she had listened to a lot of music that was choral music or chamber music or, you know, random instrumental music, which is, which to me is, is heartening because it means that she's already kind of in, in a separate part of my brain than just the kind of, this is what works for film. That's, that's awesome. And so with that said, what were some of your prior works that maybe influenced or were drawn upon for, for Pachinko? Um, this is a good question. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, there's not a lot of precedent in terms of what I've made because it's such a weird, it's such a weird little score. I mean, there, there are things that are reminiscent of my choral music. There's a, there's a, piece I wrote maybe 15 years ago called Bright Mass with Cannons that that kind of creeps in and out. Um, there are a couple pieces that are drone-based pieces that I wrote for like a single drone instrument and then and then like a viola playing on top of it or piano playing on top of it. Those appear, um, I, say, I say those appear, there, there's some genetic material from those things. Um, I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to know. I, mean, I, really, I really did have to invent a whole a whole sound for this project though that wasn't that wasn't um, uh, too derivative of anything else that I'd done before. I, I, I hope. <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm just you, kidding myself. Can you talk a little bit about that, about developing that palette and how you approach that? I, sure. I mean, the score for Pachinko is so deeply unique, not, not just as a, a film score, but just, I, I just, it's just, it's, it's, it's so its own thing.
there are a couple of things that 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 shaped how it ended up. Number one, I said right from the beginning, from the first time I spoke to Sue, I was like, I will not use any East Asian instruments at all of any kind with any thematic references to East Asian material, music, not happening. And if you want someone to do that, you have to hire someone who is himself or herself East Asian. And that's not a question, Um, which helped (laughs) because that's not how I'm going to go down. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and, and, And also I have no business doing that. Right. So that's not, you know, it's not like France and the late 19th century, nor is it, you know, I'm whatever. That's not, that's not going to be coming down my runway. So then once we established that, then it was thinking, okay, does the score need to be really thematic, like human being by human being, or does it have to function more situationally, which is to say, you know, the past has a sound and the present has a sound, or does it have to do the opposite of that, which is sort of where we landed, where it's like everything has to be constantly in flux. So it's never like you only hear this one instrument when you're in Osaka in the 30s and you only hear this other instrument in New York. Like it has to be very um, fluid. And then also there are themes, but they're not it's not like Wagnerian, right? There, there aren't themes that cling to people like you would have in, in sort of Star Wars or whatever. So w- once I figured that out, then it became clear that what I needed to play with was were, were um, a, a combination of ensemble playing and then super tight solo playing. So it's like you're, you know, ensemble, 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 and then suddenly you're just listening to like two violins. Or it had to be something that was, um, you know, electronic music somehow and then all of a sudden those same notes are immediately acoustic so it goes back it goes back and forth between you know acoustic and digital and contemporary and very traditional and so there's a there's a lot going on but it was deciding on the liquidity of it that that it wasn't going to be these kind of hard cuts to say okay now we're in the future yeah the the time jumps make it really interesting you know, yeah, I mean, they're contra- not want to say controversial, but I remember when I when I read when I read the script the first time because that book is the book is chronological and the book is epic, and I remember reading that script and being like, "Whoa, okay, this is on shuffle mode," um, and realizing right away that the music was going to have to do a lot of work no matter how we used it, right? Even if even if it was like when you're in the 30s, you listen to music from the even if it were that explicitly, this belongs to this, it was going to have to do a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, what would was there a moment when you you like you you get the cut right? You had read the book, you re, you read the book, you read the script, and then you get the cut. Like just jumping in, like I, I that was really helpful. Like the whole process, of how you break it down to kind of deconstruct what it needs. But when you finally started actually putting music to it, was there like an aha moment when when you're actually putting music to picture? Oof. Um, there were a couple. Yeah. I mean, we, I, 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 so let me, let me also say, I mean, I know that COVID was new for all of us for a lot of reasons. Um, doing this without, I didn't, I didn't meet Sue until we had recorded the whole score. We literally did. We're not in the same room. Um, I didn't see anybody except for like my team at all. So we would have these crazy meetings on, on, um, 
on Evercast, which if if your listeners don't know what it is, it's like Zoom for film and it's a shit show. I mean, it's, an, it's like, it's one of those pieces of software you, where your eyes hurt just even saying it just now, I feel like my eyes are popped <laughs> in my head. Um, and so what what I we sort of talked about, and this is with me and with Susanna Perich, the music editor, who's a huge part of this process, um, was get getting a couple of the hard things out of the way. And those were, those were um, the very first time when when um, Hansu sees Sunja at the end of episode one. Um, it was the very first time that we see her as a baby girl, kind of really loving her dad. Also in episode one, um, it was the kind of intense moment when the older Korean grandmother refuses to sell her to sell her house in episode six, or seven, five, whatever, whatever. So I think they blurred together. Um, and then the, um, the scene where the, the, the grandmother makes the white rice for her daughter before she goes, goes to get married. So those are the ones that I was like, these, we have to get this. We have to nail this right away before anything else happens. And so once we got those, then it was much easier. It, it became, we'd sort of unlocked it with those big pieces. But the other thing I should add was that they were sending me dailies. So I wasn't always looking at complete cuts because um, we just didn't have the time. So I was looking at, I was writing sometimes to, you know, quote unquote, to picture, but not to anything resembling an edited version. So there was, there's a whole, so there are eight episodes in the show. And then we invented a ninth episode just for the music department. That was these long, long cues that were linked to certain pieces of thematic material. So for instance, like the rice is like a thing. And then Solomon remembering, you know, his childhood is another thing. And, and you know, I write these five or six minute long pieces, which are on the, on the soundtrack, but don't appear like that in the film. They get cut up. When you were approaching the film, and you were unlocking those difficult scenes that were going to kind of define your Rosetta Stone, what characteristics did those scenes had that you identified them as being the ones to unlock? What, what made them the ones to unlock that you knew that if you got those, you could get right. the rest? Um, it was the ones, and uh, this is, it's a very interesting question. There's two, there, there are two, opposite answers the first is it's scenes of like deep emotional purity in terms of this is this is a scene that is like absolute raw like mother mother daughter this sacrifice that she's making that to, for the for the ritual of making rice and how that is you know this genetic thing like that that was something that I knew it was so it had to be emotionally like absolutely nail it in terms of the tone similarly with her with her dad it's like it had to be it had to be this pure expression of childish whateverness um then there were also these scenes of great emotional ambiguity so when he first sees her um when he first sees her in the in the fish market it's like you there's so many ways to get that wrong right so there's a way where he looks at her and then you think, oh, it's just like a, it's just like a standard romance. Like this is like the dance at the gym or whatever at West Side Story. Or you can make it seem like he's a spider. You know what I mean? And you can make it seem like he sees someone that he's going to like do emotional violence to, which, you know, by the way, not know. Um, and so you have to kind of have all those things and, and every other piece of interpretation, right? Because she's excited and scared 
and he's he's you know feeling this there's a romance to it but you can't make it be too much so the getting those things which which is to say something that is like an emotional like hammer blow to the face and then also something much 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 more subtle um but to give you an example you know the the material that happens when when she with her dad when when it's just like the pure father daughter love expression material the only other time we hear that is in the last like 12 seconds of the show in episode eight when she's like selling kimchi and is like in some way actualized right and it's and it's shot very similarly where you're like on her face and you're on her eyes and then the the camera kind of explodes out so i thought okay you know planting that seed there had to work also in this more nuanced way later that's amazing um in the process, once you unlocked the Rosetta Stone and you were kind of in and working on it, were there moments where there was a different kind of like you got a certain kind of inspiration or things just kind of clicked in a way that you hadn't anticipated because of the source material? Hmm. Um, sort of. I mean, I didn't have any any kind of any kind of comedic sort of scientific, oh my God, you know, eureka moments. But I will say, I will say, and you know, I hope that every composer that you interview shouts out their music editor, Susanna, Susanna Parrish, who's a miraculous, miraculous woman, had the innate ability to, if something wasn't working and it was clear that it wasn't working, she was never like, oh, throw it out. She's like, you know what though? Let's keep it. Cause I bet you I can find a place for it, you know, in three episodes from now. And she had this very interesting way of being able to kind of throw stuff up against different picture, um, which is simultaneously, you know, I, I'm, I'm smiling as I say this, it's simultaneously frustrating because you think, oh, why didn't I think of that? But it's also something that sort of, in a weird way the composer couldn't have thought of, right? It's like, it's like the difference between someone who's, you know, she, she was able to see it in a more zoomed out way because I was writing 10 hours a day with my nose and my computer, you know, and she's working much, much more closely in, um, in this kind of bigger, bigger scale way of looking for, looking for cues. So um, there were a lot of moments like that where, where she'd call me up and be like, well, by the way, like this thing that you wrote right here, that's fine. But actually, why don't you look at it against this other totally random different place and, and then, and then make that work there. You know, and that was, those are amazing moments to me. That's amazing, man. I mean, it really is kind of cool. I do a lot of music supervision and, um, you know, it's always interesting to me how different pieces of music, you know, don't work where they're intended, but they work someplace else better. Oh yeah. It's Um, amazing. You know, and how much the tone of a scene changes with, you know, sometimes subtle, subtle edits to the music in timing just to kind of hit a particular moment or whatever so that that's really um that's oh it's the best it's the best feeling in the world yeah so you know all of these are different right like each project has its own demands um you know we had worked with you previously on the reader right and you know that's a very different score than this one because it had different needs right and when you approach um a project like this i guess you know could you just talk a little bit about like maybe some of the other scores you've done how i guess the approach is the same but it's different right because the material is different like 
what yeah. is that like? It's a good question. I mean, it's it is as as we discussed before. I mean, there's there's every 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 project is different for a lot of reasons, and oftentimes, you know, I I I'm very glad that there is not a formula for how to do this, because there's there's such a fun. It's like you're learning. You learn how to do it anew each time, right? Or at least for me, because I I think maybe if I did it three times as much, I would start. I would start to to understand a formula. But I'm really happy with um, it. It all being very different. But honestly, and this this again is something worth you know. I I I would love to pretend that we exist in in a in a sort of artistic vacuum. But different projects have different budgets. Different projects have different pe- pe- like personalities involved. Um, different projects have uh, you know, different clusters of personalities involved. So it's like for, for a TV show, it's like, okay, this editor thinks about music in a different way than this editor, right? Or you think, you know, a, a really hands-off producer is perhaps a different, a different, you know, it affects the artistic process if you have if you have a production crew that's like not really involved in the music versus having like Scott Rudin or whatever. Like there's a lot of different, a lot of different versions of of the basic conditions of making the thing. Um which I think, honestly, for me, it feels like sports. Actually, it's like it's like decoding, decoding the environment in which you find yourself. It's like you're dropped into this crazy planet, and you just have to figure it out. That's pretty dope. That's pretty dope. It, it keeps it fresh, right? Yeah, no, it does. It does keep it fresh. I mean, I think you know, my my hat is off to to people who do this. You know, that, that for this is the the only thing they do because I I can't imagine. I mean, it's interesting because if you think if you think about you know composers who have really long relationships with directors, right? So it's like you know John Williams and 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 um, Spielberg, or or you know those those long relationships feel like that's kind of the goal, right? Where it's like you get you you both get into your processes, and that, and that's that's how I work with you know there are choreographers I've worked with like eight times, and and you 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 nail it, like you 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 get it. But there is something fun about like all right, here we go, we're in this adventure together, let's do it. That's dope. Um, on this project, are there any anecdotes or teaching moments that are a result of this specific project? That's a good question. Um, I mean, did you come out of it with like some different understanding or having learned something that you didn't think that you would... I don't know. It's just, you know, because they are all unique and different. I'm just yeah. wondering if there were any anecdotes or teaching moments where you're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, you make sure you hire singers who aren't SAG members. <laughs> 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 Listen, of all the Michigas that I've put up with during COVID, that was like top 10. <laughs> so, <laughs> like literally, I was like, how is this the thing that's going to do me in? So, um, Let's see. No, I mean, honestly, I the the things that I, the things that I learned on this were were um, very practical about about solving solving the hardest things first, um, and really really making sure that they're not just okay but really great, and making sure that there you've established a vocabulary of trust between the people who are in the room making the thing between the editors and the directors and the showrunners and that that if you if you've looked after some of the more sacred plants in the garden early then the rest does does actually tend to tend to um fall into place what would be you know given the diversity of the work that you do 
I guess there, there it's, I, I guess it's a two part question, right? So one would be like, as far as like film and TV goes, like what would be the dream project if you got the call for it? Like what would be something, I mean, Pachinko seems really fucking tasty and you've got a lot of really great stuff on your filmography, but is there something that like would be particularly exciting where you'd be like, oh yeah, this, this would be the one I would drop everything for. That's a really good question. No one's actually ever asked me that. Um, let's see. I mean, it's, it, that's, that is actually really interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I feel like, um, wow. I, I, honestly, that is, it has never occurred to me that I would get, I would get the choice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the thing, I mean, the thing that, we, the thing that I would love to do um, more than more than any, I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw seen this. The the, the um, they opened a new subway line today in London, like a new commuter rail thing, and um, uh, I I would love to write the music that people like the little door chimes before they close the doors. That that's pretty fucking cool. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I want to do. So if you know anyone who does door chimes for subway trains, have them call me on my home number. Well, look, man, I'm glad we had this conversation because like, you know, maybe you should let your agent know that. Like, you know, it's like, oh, they know, they know. They're like, okay, shut up about the trains already. (laughs) (laughs) I know that they're, sorry. Um, You know, I I was watching this doc. I I don't know how we got there. It's like my wife and I will like channel surf at night in this like one million channel world of like, you know, the event horizon of content creation between like all these streaming platforms and, you know, God knows what you find on YouTube if you go down the wrong rabbit hole. Right. And somehow we ended up on a documentary about the sound designers for BMW. So, you know, yes, exactly. And then that, you know, those shits, when you rent those cars, it's like, you know, you, you, I accidentally went to the BMW a couple of years ago in, in the UK and you, you, the sound when it turns on is really specific. And then also when you're in it, it's like there, someone has designed the environment that you're in, especially as the car, as cars get quieter and we all have to get really careful because they're going to kill us. When, <laughs> as, as cars get quieter, they, they need to, have, anyway, whatever. I'm, obs- I'm obsessed with practical sound design. It makes me so happy. A, a million years ago, I did, I did the chime before they played videos on the New York Times.com which was awesome. Um, that was like a really fun and very stressful project. <laughs> that, that's really cool. So I just want to ask, like, what is it about that kind of practical environmental sound that, that turns you on? Because it's like the Eno thing, right? It's like the whole inspiration for music for airports. It's like, la-di-da, la-di-da, we're going to all fucking die in these metal death tubes. And I'm listening to some horrible music before I get onto an airplane. And it could be the last thing I ever hear, right? It's kind of like paraphrasing, yeah. you know, Eno's like whole thing for like music for like, airports, right? It's so being so what, what, what is it for you about that? What's, I mean, I guess it's the, the idea that there is, there's so much involuntary music that you listen to, right? There's, there's so much music that you don't, you don't choose to put on. It's either happening in, you know, it's in the back. If you're in the back of a car and someone's listening to music, or if you pass someone on the street and they're playing music, or if you, you know, I guess sometimes if you go to a concert and you don't like one of the pieces, you're li- involuntarily listening to music. But we're surrounded by so much of it, um, and there's something kind of beautiful about 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 I think trying to make something that touches people in a in a subtle way, right? I and mean, it's 
I mean, most most musicians I know are kind of obsessed with the um, the French National Train Network has this beautiful semi-organic kind of voice chime that happens. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm like I, I I I like I like being practical because you know things that aren't practical include like writing a string quartet, whereas something something that millions of people will hear and hopefully really love. <laughs> it's kind it's kind of it's kind of exciting. That that's really cool. You know, I'm I'm glad that we got to something that maybe other people haven't asked. You know, so mm, that totally yeah, no one's ever actually asked me that. Uh, because I mean, the, you know, your work is so diverse that, you know, like, I just wonder what a guy like you thinks about, like how you think about the world and how you think about music and how we relate to it, because you're definitely, in my opinion, you know, tuned to a different frequency than the rest of us are listening to. Right. So I'm always kind of curious, like from your perspective, what it is that you're tuned into. Yeah. I mean, but you know, it's honestly, it's, I, I, all these things, all these things change all the time. Like you get obsessed with one thing and you get obsessed with another thing. And sometimes I really do just really do just say, you know, I really tonight just want to listen to music in the normal fashion. And then other times you think, I just want to walk around New York and let music happen to me, (laughs) you know, just see, (laughs) see what happens by accident. Uh, I guess the the last thing I'm going to ask um, just kind of circling back to to early early years and being a young gentleman in New York um, working for Philip Glass, when you work with somebody of that stature that intimately, what kind of do you get any kind of insights from them, even with whether it's like life ins not necessarily musical insights, but like life insights, philosophical, uh, philosophical insights. What do you get, you know, being around Philip Glass intimately? And does that, does that serve you? Does it, does it give you a sense of things that you aspire to or things that you want to avoid? How does that all work, especially at, at the, at the, the budding age of 22? Um, I will tell you exactly what it is. Phil, so Philip is interesting. He he's not a teacher. Like he doesn't have students. He doesn't. Um, he uh, does two things that I I admire and that I emulate actively. Which is he um, he is he runs his own publishing company, which I don't do. Um, but he's surrounded by people who work for him in such a way that it means that he works for them. So there are so many people who are relying on him to write and he's part of an ecosystem. He's like a musical citizen. So it's not like a mad genius who just goes off and like, you know, hoards money or whatever. It's like Philip is, he has enough people around him who, whose living is based on his work. And it's the sense of, you know, you hire your, you hire your friends. And, you know, with a score like this, for, to give you an example of Pachinko, it's like, I knew I could make it so much easier so much more fluently if I hired all my friends right so if you look at if you look at the credits list on the album it's like people that it's like people on my speed dial already right so it's and that's something that that is very Philip so it's not it's not like ah fuck it let's just go to Prague and like record it for the dollars 75 with strangers and then get out of there which you know certainly tempts one from time to time but uh you know if 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 you look at philip's operation it's very much a, a, a consistent list of collaborators which i admire greatly but the other thing is that philip does not care at all if something isn't working and he he will he will absolutely throw it out and start again without even an argument and i've never seen anything like it and i remember we were doing we were doing uh the hours 
and it probably was the hours. And there was this cue that wasn't working and we Philip had worked on it forever and it took me forever to make the demo of it. And it was like this whole thing. And we got to the, we got to the showing and it wasn't working. And instead of being like, well, don't you think like, maybe we should try this? He was like, okay, I'll run another one. It's miraculous. And so I, I, I endeavor to, I endeavor to be that Zen about it, you know? And of course with Philip, it's like, it's like, the, whatever that cue is, I'm sure has appeared in 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 cinemas near you in other contexts because his music works no matter what. You know, literally, it's like if you if you have a film of two people arguing about like you know paper or plastic bags and you put Philip's music underneath it, it sounds really important and like fabulous right now. <laughs> it's true. It's literally it's try really, it. Really true. Video, like videotape someone just like having a really boring argument in, in in front of Starbucks or something, and like just just take the I don't I, I assume you have like you know final cut at home or whatever. Just get it home and then just be like, like get that get that. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm telling you, it's, it works. <laughs> it's, it works. <laughs> That's great. That's really great. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I find that, ironically, the, the most successful film composers I know are people that share that trait of being, you know, having worked on something and then, a, you know, because, you know, you know, filmmaking, TV shows, whatever, it's all it's all done by committee, right? Like there's there's all these as you were saying, these different groups or groups of groups and voting factions and, you know, creative blocks and, you know, just like nothing is ever like a, a singular author, right? I mean, it's just all of these competing interests on everything. Right. And, you know, the people that I've seen that have done really well, you know, have the ability like to walk into a room with something that they thought was really awesome 15 minutes ago. And, you know, 15 minutes later, be like, okay, it's not working. Yeah. Next. Exactly. 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 You just got to, you have to do it. You, just you just no overt emotional connection to like justifying, defending, rationalizing, just like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I would also say, you know, my, my hat is off in such a major way to sue Hugh on this because she, you know, going into this project, like, I, you know, a month in she sent a document that was essentially a spotting document and they, they hadn't even finished filming and she knew exactly how she wanted music to function across the whole eight episode arc. And she, you, you got the sense at that time that she was paying attention to this kind of meta structure about how the music was going to function. That was so appreciated because it, it meant that I never mistrusted a note that I got from her. Her notes were always like in the service of this gigantic, structure that she was very able to see so I never you know because sometimes you get notes from people especially especially you know because in this in this it really was a very small core group of people who were working at least who were giving me notes but you know as, as I'm sure you know like some of these projects there's five million people many of whom are paid a lot of money to say dumb stuff that no one listens to you know I mean it's that's kind of my experience of some of these things is, is that, you know, there are people whose job it is to just have something to say. It doesn't matter if anyone listens to it, but you have to listen to it and pretend that you've heard it. This was never, ever, ever, ever that. This was like completely, every utterance had, had a meaning of some, of some, of some variety. Well, that, that's always really helpful. Um, I, I'm just about done, man. Is there anything, is there anything, um, about 
Pachinko in particular, or you or your career, your career arc that I haven't asked you that you would want people to know about life so. I mean, art I, process? No, I, I, I think all, all I would say is that this, this project was such a pleasure and it was so, it was such a kind of lifeline in COVID. Um, and I've also been, I've also been very, you know, which, what, go, going, going back to what we talked about at the beginning where I was like, I, you know, I needed to be make, make clear that as one of the very few non-East Asian people involved in this, that I came correct, right? That I, that I wasn't just sort of blasting a kind of, you know, my aesthetic all over this thing, but also not trying to co-opt anything. And something that's been really heartening for me is, is realizing like how many people um, of, of Korean Japanese descent for, for whom this show, not just the book, but for the, for whom the show is really hitting, hitting a note that, that I could never deliberately strike. And that makes me really happy to be, to have been part of something that, that um, works for a lot of people in a lot of surprising ways. Oh, that's awesome, man. Um, well, that's it for me. I appreciate cool. your time. My absolute pleasure. We'll we'll let you know when this thing goes live, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking more as we move into, um, you know, knock on wood, any any wonderful things that might happen during uh, Emmy season. One one never knows. All right, one well, we'll talk soon. You you've got me uh, you've got me uh, on 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 dial now. <laughs> awesome. Thank right, you. Take so care. Much. Have a good afternoon. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye.